Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Thank you again for joining us for another edition of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Ask a Chair podcast. My name is Aaron Kuzel and I'm a PGY2 resident at the University of Louisville School of Medicine and currently a member at large of the SAM Rams Board. I'm very honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Robert Hochberger, the Chair Emeritus at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Hochberger graduated from Loyola University Stritch School of Medicine and attended residency at the University of Chicago Billings Hospital. Dr. Hochberger has served in numerous roles in his long career in emergency medicine, most notably as Chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Harbor UCLA, Assistant Professor at the University of Chicago School of Medicine, past President of the American Board of Emergency Medicine, and President of our own SAM Board of Directors. He has served as lead and chair of multiple committees and task forces and is a current editor of the Rosen Textbook of Emergency Medicine. In 2008, Dr. Hochberger received the ASAP Heroes of Emergency and Medicine Award, along with many other accolades from state and national institutions. In 2014, he received the Los Angeles Biomedical Institute Harbor UCLA Medical Center's Legends Award. Dr. Hochberger has given many lectures on leadership, mentorship, as well as faculty development, and I'm very delighted to be speaking with what I consider a legend of emergency medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today, Doc. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And so, you know, as I mentioned in our introduction, you have spent the last 25 years working as a chair of department. And through that time, you've enjoyed many academic achievements, opportunities, president of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and past president of the American Board of Emergency Medicine. You've served in a multitude of committees and chairs and have authored or co-authored more than 80 publications and as a senior editor for Rosen's. With all this experience and watching emergency medicine grow from its infancy, what in our specialty and its journey make you the most pleased or proud? I think the fact that I was there um, and had a chance to work with the people who were the the founders and early leaders in our specialty, Peter Rosen, John Wigenstein, the first president of ASAP, Ron Crone, David Wagner, Gail Anderson, and others, uh, I had a chance to hear from them their vision for what our specialty might be, both as a clinical practice and an academic discipline. And then over the years, I was involved with the Residency Review Committee for Emergency Medicine, the American Board of Emergency Medicine, was involved with both SAEM and ASAP, and had a chance to, I think the common parlance is, be in the room where it happened, watching this specialty develop to the point where it is today. For example, in the late 80s, I served on the Residency Review Committee And we had members from major universities and people from private practice hospitals. And we were trying to decide how to establish standards that would advance the specialty, but not overwhelm and discredit certain types of hospitals. And so the people at major universities wanted high standards for scholarship. The people at the private hospitals wanted 24 hour attending coverage because that would be better for patient care and for teaching. At that time, the universities really weren't providing overnight coverage. And to watch people on both sides absolutely committed to their view, discuss, and ultimately come to a compromise, we decided that we did have to have 24-hour coverage for better resident teaching and patient care, but we also did something no other specialty had done. We limited the number of clinical hours that faculty could work, and we established standards for scholarship that people had to make. No other medical discipline in academics had done that. And those things together, I think, really helped move the specialty forward. So the chance to be in the room when that happened was just just amazing. A few years after that, I had the opportunity to serve on the Emergency Medicine Model Task Force. 
A lot of people don't know too much about that. During the 70s and 80s, there was a document called the Core Curriculum in Emergency Medicine. And it was a list of all the procedures and things that people ought to, to learn about in order to practice emergency medicine. And ABEM decided that it needed a, a more scientifically developed document upon which to base its test specifications. And so it led an effort that involved ABEM and ASAP and CORD and SAEM and EMRA. And we contracted with the National Board of Medical Examiners to undergo a two-year study that cost about a quarter of a million dollars to create a model that described the clinical practice of emergency medicine. And to actually see representatives, there were two representatives from each organization, come to the table again, representing the views of their emergency medicine organization and their view of the specialty, negotiate and fight and uh, talk behind the scenes and ultimately come up and develop this model was really just amazing. And as a result of it today, we are the only medical discipline that has a single source document that uh, residency, residency program directors use to develop their curricula, that the ACGME uses to accredit training programs, that ABEM uses to develop the test specifications for board certification exam, and that SAEM uses for research agenda and ASEP for its advocacy. As an example, it really helped that we had a single definition of what emergency medicine was, including all the things that were incorporated into clinical practice, when ASEP wanted to argue that we should be able to bill for ultrasounds because radiology was absolutely against that. But the fact that we had the performance of bedside ultrasound in this universally accepted within our specialty definition of the practice of emergency medicine really helped get that ball over the end into the end zone. And so this document really, many people don't know about it, being able to work behind the scenes and see it be developed was I think one of the things that, that brought me the most personal and professional satisfaction. And I think as residents, we we see our profession, and, and you can ask when you're interviewing other medical students, as one of the most progressive, if not the most uh, progressive specialty in medicine to this day. Why do you think that emergency medicine has kind of taken that onerous of becoming the most progressive and, and moving the ball forward for our specialty in the house of medicine? Probably in part because of the people who began this specialty and the people they chose to bring into the specialty and mentor to move forward. It was a battle for us to become the 23rd recognized medical specialty for a number of reasons. People in the American Board of Medical Specialties were concerned that there was nothing in emergency medicine that wasn't contained in some other medical specialty. And it took the development of programs and research agendas and the management of pre-hospital care systems and the beginning to do research in pre-hospital care in the ED and things like trauma and cardiac arrest and poisoning and overdose to convince them that while there's nothing in emergency medicine that isn't theoretically described in some other medical discipline, no one had really addressed the first few frames in the motion picture of the presentation of disease and illness. And it was worth developing a medical specialty to teach people to focus on that part of medical care and to do research to improve the care for that kind of medical problem. And so the sort of people who get involved in that are the people who not just need to justify their existence, but move on past that. And so once we became accepted as a medical specialty, then it was very quickly, what kind of subspecialties can we develop? When we began to do research in emergency medicine very quickly, it was how can we liaise with people in critical care and trauma 
to expand the bounds of what kind of research can we do. When you have to fight within a university to be recognized, well, the next step is to be respected. And people went from emergency medicine to being chair to chief of staff. And I think there's, if I'm correct, and I think I am, there have in the last decade been more deans appointed from the specialty of emergency medicine than from any other medical discipline. So I think part of it is the kind of people who are pioneers who get into an endeavor. And part of it is the fight for recognition that then leads to respect and then to just basically fulfillment. Those kind of people can tend to move forward. And we've been lucky enough to get a lot of those people in our specialty. And I would agree. I think so. And it's kind of the reason I chose the specialty is we are pioneers and it is something that we continue to pioneer on different medical innovations. As you spoke about the being around where the, the decisions are made and, and seeing emergency medicine from its infancy, do you think that we are heading in the direction that our framers, uh, for lack of a better word, envisioned? Yes, I think when you, I've read a fair amount about leadership. John Maxwell is one of my favorite authors. And he defines a vision as a doable dream based on knowledge, experience, and imagination. And he gives examples. Martin Luther King, whose vision was racial harmony in America, or Mother Teresa, alleviation of starvation in India, uh, Walt Disney, creation of the happiest place on earth, and John Wigenstein, the first president of ASEP and the people he worked with, it was access to high quality emergency care for all Americans. That vision is one that has sustained us and that vision pulls us forward. And so I think we continue to move in that direction. In the future, where are we gonna go? I think the terrible pandemic that we've had has brought us to the forefront and made us recognized and respected for the, the care that we provide and the chances that we take, the risks that we take to provide that care. As we move forward, I imagine there'll be advances in technology. I don't know what the next ultrasound will be, but, but we'll be there. I do know that SAEM has just created a new research grant to fund preparedness and response to emerging infections. That's kind of interesting. The, um, I was listening to a podcast not too long ago that said that you can trace almost all of the modern pandemics, SARS and MERS and Ebola and the coronavirus to the jungles and forests that humanity has entered in both the mining and logging industry and the exposure to animals that carry viruses that we have never seen and as a result have no immunity to. And because those businesses are not going to go away, we are going to continue to have pandemics in the years to come. And epidemiologists are afraid that governments will move from what they're doing now, addressing this crisis, to all the other problems and not worry about the next emerging infection. And so I do think potentially in emergency medicine, an area of, of research really is how are we going to help recognize the next pandemic? How are we going to prepare ourselves and our hospitals to deal with the next pandemic? So I think as we move forward, our, our basic vision of high quality emergency care and access to that 24 hours a day from anyone who needs it, will continue to move forward. But what it exactly looks like will change with the times and the, the changes that occur. And I think your fears are well-founded because I can remember growing up, we had the Ebola scare and we were putting nets and all kinds of uh, other instruments that are still in some emergency departments across the country, as well as the the uh, swine flu epidemic that uh, luckily we kind of headed off. And it just seems that the government just kind of changes its mind after this. But hopefully 
this time and the economic impact felt by this pandemic may shift changes. And I think uh, as medicine specialties, uh, all specialties should be pretty clear with our representatives and making sure that this is either the last pandemic or reducing the next chance of the next pandemic. Now, switching away from a national uh, position, what's your proudest moment as a chair and now maybe as chair emeritus? Yeah, I think for me, it's not a moment, it's a series of moments. And I think people are most proud of those things they work hardest to accomplish. So to step back, um, I grew up in the Midwest, the oldest of six boys in a big family. They had six of us in five years. And so my father was a small business owner, my mother a community activist. So they were always out doing things. And my job was to make sure that my brothers did their homework, learned their Latin because we were all altar boys, taught them how to shoot a basketball and pass a football. I really enjoyed being a big brother. And I think that's why when I finished my residency, I went into academics and wanted to be a residency director and later a department chair. I think I've always enjoyed being and have sort of seen myself as a big brother. And so when I have faculty who get a big grant or have a major publication or get a uh, become a leader in some emergency medicine organization or get an award for their research or their teaching or their leadership. And in particular, when I see those people become mentors for other people, that's what makes me proud. All of those accomplishments, it makes me feel that I'm part of the, the circle or the cycle of ongoing academic life in emergency medicine. That's amazing. Going back to, I know we kind of touched on on the COVID-19 pandemic, but we we find ourselves in unprecedented times, and you know, emergency physicians, as we talked about, and leaders within emergency medicine have been challenged uh, like never before. As a pioneer of emergency medicine, who you know has already talked about navigating emergency medicine from its infancy, what advice would you give to leaders in emergency medicine in navigating this trial? Now, I know that as this podcast is being recorded, the first week of vaccinations have already been starting to be dulled out to different hospitals, but um, how do we grow as a specialty in spite of this pandemic? I don't claim to be a great leader, but I have had the opportunity to work with people who were great leaders, to read and think a fair amount about leadership and to serve in a few leadership roles in emergency medicine. And I think what I've learned is that leaders have two things. They have a vision for what they want to accomplish and they have a team that they work with to accomplish that vision. And I think if I were going to give advice to a younger brother who was going to go into a leadership position, it would be to keep the vision in mind, but focus 90% of your effort on the team. I've read that the, it is rare that the smartest person in a room is the best leader in a room. Half the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies graduated with a C minus average or less. Half the presidents of the United States graduated if they went to college in the bottom half of their college class. The best leader in the room is usually not the smartest person in the room, but the one who can look around at the people in the room, gauge their strengths and their weaknesses, and get those people to work together to accomplish something that none would be able to accomplish on their own. So I think my advice would be, no matter what you're doing, chairing a department, running a residency, being on a national committee or a member of a board, if you're in a leadership position, keeping in mind the goals of the organization, but spending most of your time functioning on your, 
your team members or focusing on them? Who are they as individuals? What do they want to accomplish professionally? What are their strengths and help them leverage those? What are their weaknesses and help them address those? What can you do to get these people buying in to your vision of what they what needs to be accomplished, the goal for your department or for the board for SAM this year, while you help them realize their goals and their expectations. I think those are the best kind of leaders and that's the kind of leader I've tried to be. And that doesn't address your question specifically, but I, whether it's a, a pandemic or a financial crisis or several of your faculty leaving suddenly to go somewhere else, there are all of these crises that occur all the time. But if you remember to take the, the, pre, the, the focus and the pressure off of the insurmountable challenge in front of you, and you focus on the people who are working with and for you to help so that you help them help you move through that crisis or that problem and into that future that you envision, that is fun. And I think that sustains leaders over time. It isn't so much the, the award you get or the accomplishment you have at the end of your career. It's all of those relationships you've had, the side conversations with patients and their families, teaching a resident at the bedside, um, how to deal with a dying patient, working with a colleague who you differ with to come to some compromise to help move the specialty forward, whether it's ASAP or SAEM or those two organizations fighting with each other over some topic. It really is the, the relationships you develop, the friendships you develop. Those are the memories that you carry forward into your retirement, which is, in fact, where I am now and how I can appreciate what I'm saying really is, in fact, the case. I know you said that it doesn't answer my question, but I think it answers my question in a very big way. So I thank you for that response. Now, moving away from COVID, uh, there's a lot of talk about finding your niche in emergency medicine, or you're just like your super very specific area of interest. I've seen in reviewing your CV and in my conversation with you, you've served on very many academically diverse committees with very different objectives. In my own experience, it seems like when we talk to uh, faculty or junior faculty, they're always trying to be a drive for residents or, or junior faculty to discover this niche in emergency medicine. Since you have had, had broad experience in different aspects of emergency medicine, would you agree that we should find this niche or should we be open to these d- diversity or diverse experiences or diversify our own experiences? Yeah, I think early in your career, diversifying at least until you find out what it is you want to do with your career and then specializing makes the most sense. Now, that leads to the question, how do you know what you want to do with your career? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) Including me, it's a little bit of trial and error, but Peter Rosen did give me an exercise to do once. Let me step back and say, I think I mentioned earlier that John Maxwell says that a vision is a doable dream based on knowledge experience, and imagination. And so what Peter Rosen told me to do was to write a paragraph describing what I wanted to do with my life, not being a department chair or the president of an organization, but how did I want to spend my life? Describe what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, what I love doing and what I hate doing. And with the experiences I've had in my life and some imagination, how would I like to spend my time? And so I did that. And the first one I came up with at my age of 30 was to serve the poor through medical education activities. 
that really was what resonated with me when I paired back my paragraph to seven words or less. It almost always ends up being seven words. But with that, taking a job as a residency director at a public hospital in California made sense. And then once I did that, volunteering to be a site visitor for the residency review committee and later to be on the committee so that I could take a look at what other programs were doing so I could steal some of those ideas for my own. And I could negotiate in the discussions about what would standards be to carry education and emergency medicine forward, to take classes, to learn how to be a better teacher and a better writer. All of those things together, I think ultimately was the reason I got one of the ASAP Education Awards. But my goal wasn't to get an award for that. My goal was to spend a life doing the things that I enjoyed doing. When I was 40, they offered me the job of chair of emergency medicine at Harvard. And I didn't know if I wanted to do that or not, but I remembered that exercise. And so I went back and went through it again. And what I came up with was uh, provide leadership to highly committed professional colleagues. My 10 years as a residency director had taught me that I, I really wanted to be a leader and taking the job of department chair would help me do that. So then how do I become a better leader? Well, I do that by reading about leadership, by putting myself in positions where I could work with and learn from leaders. Someone wise once said, if you tell me two things about someone, I'll tell you where they'll be in five years, what they read and who they spend their time with. I also read somewhere once that we are all the average of the five people we spend our most time with. Now that may well be because we're drawn to people who have similar interests to our own. But to me, what it said is that if I wanna be a leader, then I need to spend time with people who are leaders, even if they aren't the kind of people who by personality and perspective, I would naturally be drawn to. And so I volunteered to be the chief of staff at something most people don't wanna be at their hospital. I got onto committees and volunteered to be chairs of subcommittees and then to be chair of committees. And then I ran to be on boards. And I didn't do it because I wanted to be the president of some organization. I did it because I wanted to grow to be the best leader I could be for my department. Um, and when you do that, what you also find are opportunities for mentorship and to give uh, the opportunity for your people to write textbook chapters or be on committees and do other kinds of things that help them develop, which is part of your job as a department chair. And so I think it really is trying to figure out what it is you want to do. If you don't know, then you need to say yes to things. As an example, when I first got on the ABEM board, at my first meeting, they were looking for someone to chair the EM model review task force. And it was going to involve representatives from all those organizations I mentioned, ABEM, ASEP, SAEM, CORD, EMRA, and no one raised their hand. No one wanted to deal with the inter-organizational politics that they were going to have to deal with. And naive as I was, I was right. So I raised my hand and they said, oh, Dr. Hochberger, okay, you can share that committee. But what I found, as I mentioned um, earlier, was that getting to know those people and getting to know their organizations and the behind the scenes negotiations to figure out what change it would take to get ASAP to agree to this part of the model taught me a lot about emergency medicine, particularly organizational emergency medicine, made me friends among people in leadership positions in those organizations. And I think when I was president of, of SAEM, helped me negotiate with uh, ASAP a bit to do some things jointly that we might not other, otherwise have done. So I think saying yes to a wide variety of things, but not to so many things that you get overwhelmed. 
right? There are only so many hours in the day. So I think getting back to your question, early diversify until you understand what it is you want to do. And when you have that little seven word personal vision statement for yourself, then every time you get an opportunity, you go back and say, is this opportunity consistent with what I want to be, what I want to do, what I want to become? And over time, it makes life a little bit easier in those decisions because the harder you work, the more opportunities you're going to get. And, and you don't want to be sort of diverted off in the wrong direction. And so I think having some kind of idea of where you want to go, but not the position, it's the life you want to live and what you want to do on a day-to-day basis that really should direct where you want to go. I think from my own experience with like the mentoring programs that A7 SAM provides, you hear you hear that all the time, say yes to everything, say yes to everything. And then you also have that uh, competing force saying, oh, you need to have a, your uh, area of interest or a niche kind of played out. But going to saying yes, especially from a resident or a junior faculty's position, when do you stop saying yes? <laughs> well, I think it, it has a lot to do with um, not time management, career management, and work-life balance. Right? You really do need to decide what I want for myself personally. How much time do I need for myself and my family to be something more than just a doctor or a researcher or an educator? How do I maintain balance in my life? And, and put that aside first. And then with the time I do have for my career, you've got to work clinical shifts because that's what we get paid for. Almost always you have to have some sort of administrative job to justify your role in the department. And it only leaves a, leaves a limited amount of time after that. And I think, again, in my role as big brother, what I'd say is that's where people sometimes go wrong that they say yes to so many things that it eats into their ability to run on the beach at sunrise in the morning or take their wife out to dinner at night or spend the whole weekend with their kids going away camping somewhere because they just have to finish this project. They just have a few more chapters to edit. And I think that's where people get in trouble over the long run. And so once you've come to some sort of balance, putting aside and safeguarding what it is you want for yourself, what you have to do professionally to exist and be paid. And then with the time you have left, how do you want to spend that? And I think that's where early you say yes to a variety of things you might not say yes to. But after a while, you stop saying yes to things that really aren't going to lead you forward. Right. so I think if as a department chair, one of the areas that you get into trouble with or your faculty are where they, when they do say yes to too many things. I wanted and expected each of my faculty members to be involved in some organization, ASAP, SAEM, CORD, whatever, but not multiple organizations, at least not initially. I wanted them to get a committee. I wanted them to find an area that they were interested in and volunteer to be a subcommittee member, to rise up through the ranks in that organization, not to become president, to come as far as they felt comfortable going to see if they wanted to go to the next level for the experience that they'd have, for the people that they'd meet, for that benefit it would have to our own department for that information and that expertise and experience they'd bring back. So I'm just rambling a bit now, but the the point I'm trying to make is you don't want to diversify too much too early because that takes away the time you have to actually think moment to moment, is this what I'm enjoying? Is this what I want to spend more time doing? Is this where I want to take my career to the next level within this venue? Gotcha. So I think that that definitely helps me uh, as a person who says yes to a lot of things to find that limit. And for other residents or other junior faculty who are having that uh, that 
difficult decision in front of them. Going back to, to leadership and to our future in emergency medicine, once we kind of progress through this pandemic, do you have any words for how our future leaders should enter this new age of emergency medicine or any words of advice? I think, yeah, I have a, a general recommendation to new leaders. Um, when I became a department chair in 1988, I had been a residency director for eight years. I knew nothing about being a department chair. I was now going to manage people who were really accomplished and in many instances smarter than I was. And so I started to read books and listen to tapes. That's how old I am now. Listen to tapes as I drove my car to work. And one of the things I learned early was MBWA, managed by wandering around. And, and the point the author made was that you can't run a business from your office. You have to get down on the floor next to the assembly line, talking to the people who are there to find out what their challenges are, what would make their life better, what would make the, the job and the organization more effective. And so for me, it was Friday afternoons. Friday afternoons, I would put aside time and I would wander around the office to see which faculty were in their offices and what they were working on. And I would sit down just to see how their life was going, to hear about their problems and their challenges. I'd oftentimes ask them, what one thing can I do right now to make your life a little bit easier or this project a little more successful? And what I found after a while is that I had more and more faculty hanging around in the office on Friday afternoons because they knew that's where I was gonna be. Later, after I'd been a department chair for a while, I did the same thing at my institution. I used to wander around on Friday afternoon to talk to the chief medical officer, the chief nursing officer, other department chairs. People got used to seeing me wandering around and I'd come in and I'd sit down and it wasn't to address an issue. It was simply to see how their life was going, just to talk about what was happening. And very often I would find from the department chair of OBGYN a problem that a couple of his people had talked to him about that they had in the emergency department not so big he was going to call me about it, but as long as I was there, he'd mention it. And I was able to find out early when problems were small what they were and deal with them before they became big. I also found that having people in major leadership positions, the CMO, the CNO, the COO of the institution, know that I was there and that I cared about what was going on, it really helped me in the long run. I don't know that it got me resources I didn't get, but it got me seen as what I wanted to be, which was a team player, not someone fighting for the resources for my niche in the organization, but someone who appreciated the different perspectives and wanted to contribute to the overall leadership and development of the campus and its vision for success. And so I think if I were gonna give a, a brand new leader, whether it's a residency director, department chair, a committee chair, or president of a board, it would be managed by wandering around, um, talking to people, getting a sense of what's going on because it will make you a more effective leader. Wonderful. Kind of going along the same lines, where do you hope to see the specialty in the next five to 10 years? You know, I think it's time for the current leaders to develop the vision for where they want to take us. And I wish I, I really wish I could be wise and tell you, you know, with all of my now 45 years of experience, here's the course I think we should chart. <laughs> um, because I've seen us not wander, I've seen us be true to that original version of universal access to high quality emergency care for everyone, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. But times change. The pandemic happens. 
a new technology develops. And so I think, and again, maybe that's my, my message or take home point from most of what we talked about today. If every leader sees him or herself as a big brother or a big sister, having a vision for what they want to accomplish within the vision of emergency medicine, taking into account the vision of probably the CEO and the Dean of your medical school and, and medical center, and the challenges that come across day by day, and dealing with all of those primarily by focusing on the people who've chosen to come and work for and with you, so that as they help you develop your patient care, teaching, and research programs, you help them develop what they want to do with their career. And while you do that, you can identify the people who will replace you in your position as you move on to whatever your next position is going to be. I think that vision of leadership is what I would try to pass on to people, regardless of the, the bumps in the road or the side, the side venues that, that we are drawn off on periodically. Gotcha. And moving away from the specialty, any advice that you could give to a young resident to take steps so that they may one day become a hero of emergency medicine in his or her career? Yes, I did run across once a study. They asked 100 people over 90 years of age, if you had a chance to live your life again, what would you do differently? And by far, three answers were the most common. They said, I would have asked myself more often if I was happy doing what I'm doing. Two, I would have taken more chances. And three, I would have done more things that would have lived on after me. And I think that is a good message and a good a way of approaching life. If you go into academics, it's done automatically for you, right? You have to meet with your mentor or your department chair at least once a year. And he or she is going to say, what do you want to do with your life? What's your five and 10 year plan? Are you happy right now? Are you not happy right now? What did you do last year to, for the department and yourself? What are you prepared to do for the next year? What do you plan to do for yourself? What chances do you want to take? And so I think whether, you, whether you're the director of a private ED or the chair of a department, or even just a member of a department, to take time, probably more often than annually, but at least once a year, to ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I happy doing what I'm doing? With this next phase, the next year, what chance might I take? And what might I do to leave my residency program or my hospital or my community or the field of emergency medicine, or if you're lucky, the world, a better place for my having been here? That way you won't end up being 90 or 95 years of age looking back and saying, boy, you know, I wish I'd taken more chances. I wish I'd changed careers because I wasn't happy. I wish I'd done something that lived on after me. And I know you had alluded to that uh, academic physicians often get that when they meet with their mentor or their, or their uh, supervisor. Many of our colleagues work in a community setting and may not have that access to that opportunity. What, would, what tips would you give them to having that reevaluation or making it a habit to have that uh, yearly evaluation? Yeah, I think asking for it. I don't have much experience in private practice. I've done sure. moonlighting at a few local hospitals. I think the better directors will give you feedback um, with some regularity, but asking for it, I think is important. When I first became a department chair, I wanted to once a year organize my mind, my department. And so what I did was I put a report together in the areas of patient care, teaching and research, what the department was doing, what it had accomplished, what I hoped after meeting with my faculty would accomplish for the next year. 
And I asked to meet with the CEO and the CMO to go over my report and my vision for my department. They weren't, a lot of universities do that. My hospital did not do that. And it was immensely helpful to get that feedback on, you know, I think this is good, Bob, but you know, I wouldn't waste time with this. This is really what we want emergency medicine to do next year. And so I think, again, I was sort of viewed as a player, as a contributor, and as a potential leader on the campus because I asked my boss for feedback. And so if I were going to, going to work in a private hospital, I think I would ask at the end of six months to meet with the director to get feedback on, you know, what is it that the nurses are saying or that the other people are saying that they give you any concerns about me? I'm not looking for a pat on the back, although you're going to get some pats on the back. I'm looking for some constructive feedback in order to get better. Yeah, no one likes to be criticized, but that criticism that you get from people, that's your opportunity to improve. That's your opportunity to see how you're doing through other people's eyes. So I think seeking out criticism, hopefully it'll be constructive criticism, <laughs> would be what I'd recommend to people. And you'll be amazed um, at, at both the positive pats on the back you'll get from people and also the well-intentioned and hopefully well-worded criticism, taking your ego into account, that will help nudge you in the right direction. I think that would be very terrifying as a, as a just a year out of residency to ask for that feedback and to be afraid of all the criticisms you were likely going to get now out of that protected space of residency and then going up to your medical director who's been there for 20 years to say, oh, uh, any criticism for me <laughs> or any feedback for me? So any tips of how to approach that as a first year resident with now or first year uh, out of residency without being ter- totally terrified? <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, having been on the other side of this for so long, you're terrified at doing it. The person you're approaching almost universally will be pleased, pleased that you care enough to ask. And it's sort of like, you know, how do you go up and ask someone to be your mentor? That's a hard thing to do. What you do is you engage in a conversation with them. So when I was growing up, I was scared to death of girls and and I didn't know what to do. And I went to talk to my mother and my mother said, Bob, the the key is simply getting enough nerve to walk up and say hi. And if that girl likes you, she'll start talking. You don't have to worry about it. And it's true. It's the same thing with um, a relationship with your boss. You basically just have to set up a meeting and say hi. You know, here's who I am. This is why I came to this program. Here's what I think I'd like to accomplish. Is there anything other than simply working my shifts and showing up for conferences that I can do to help the program, that I can help myself develop. Not enough people do that in the minds of the people who are in leadership and management positions. Usually they have to go out and say, you know, come over here. I'd like to talk to you. Here's something I'd like to have you do. Take the initiative. That'd be my recommendation. Well, thank you so much. Thank you again, Dr. Hochberger, for joining us uh, for this podcast. And thank you so much for what I what I consider this masterclass in leadership one final question, any other advice or wisdom or any final parting thoughts uh, for our listeners? Yes, I um, I now facilitate a session. Um, the Association of Academic Chairs in Emergency Medicine puts on a course called the Chair Development Course. And I moderate a session on time management. And one of the things I learned in preparing for the course uh, was that there is a European journal titled the Journal of Applied Research in Quality of Life. People in Europe take vacations. And as a result, 
people in Europe do research on how to maximize the, the joy and, and enjoyment of a vacation. And what they find is that ha over half of the joy that you get from a vacation comes before you ever start the vacation. It comes from thinking about the vacation, discussing the vacation with whoever you're going to go on, planning it. So half of it comes before. And then the amount of joy on a vacation tends to peak at around days five to six and then drifts down after that. And so if you wanted to maximize the joy associated with a vacation, you would, if you have two weeks of vacation, you would take, you would take two one-week vacations, put them about six months apart. And as soon as you finish one vacation, begin to plan with your family the next vacation. The other thing is weekends. Um, if you live to be 80, you'll have over 4,000 weekends. How many will you remember? And so what they recommend for people, and since we're shift workers, you can do that, is to take one weekend a month and go from Friday afternoon to Monday morning. And that's a fairly long period of time. Take the things that you would normally do, the shopping and washing the car and doing whatever, and squeeze those into other parts of the week that time and do the same thing. Come up with your top 100 list of things you wanna do on a two-day weekend, either at home or going away with your family and spend time preparing for that. So that when you sit down to plan your next year, here's my take home point, you would have two or three vacations every three or four months, that would be about a week to 10 days. And in the months when you don't take a vacation, you'd have a three day weekend in that month that you could plan. And so that you're always about to take or in the midst of planning for a getaway for yourself and your family and your loved ones. Putting that aside, and then building your professional life around all of that would be a recommendation I'd make to people. It's something that I wish I had done. Too many of my vacations were a couple of days tagged on to a meeting somewhere for ASEP or ABEM, seeing the city with my wife. Well, that was fun. It wasn't nearly as much fun as I think we might have had had I planned it a little better. Gotcha. Well, Dr. Hochberger, this has been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ask a Chair podcast. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and I appreciate uh, you taking the time. Aaron, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this Ask a Chair podcast, and be safe out there, and hopefully get your vaccination soon. Thank you so much. Thank you.